Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас по видеосвязи. не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Сегодня вступает Привет, в силу это Навальный. В Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности... гоном вас. С новым веком. Well, it's been a while, but we do indeed need to talk about Putin. He seems to have lost his aura of omnipotence as he confronts not only a pandemic, but a rapidly changing society. His ability to influence events in Russia's neighborhood appears to be diminished and his decision-making less sure-footed. For two decades, Vladimir Putin has been the master of the Russian universe, but 2020 may go down as the year when he lost his mojo. So we do need to talk about Putin, and today we will, with the man who quite literally wrote the book on it. Hello from my makeshift studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. My name is Brian Whitmore, an adjunct assistant professor at UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from an undisclosed location somewhere in the United Kingdom is Mark Gallia. Principal Director of Mayak Intelligence, Honorary Professor at University College London School of Slavonic and Eastern European Studies, and a Senior Associate Fellow at the Royal United Service Institute. That's a lot of affiliations, Mark. Mark is also the author of the books, A Short History of Russia, The Vody, Russia's Super Mafia, and We Need to Talk About Putin. And he, of course, was my co-host in an earlier iteration of this podcast. Welcome back, Mark. It's been way too long. It has indeed. Hi there, Brian. And how long exactly? It has been two years and seven months since you and I did this together. I actually listened to that podcast to, to kind of prepare for this. And you've obviously been busy publishing three highly acclaimed books and launching your very own podcast in Moscow's Shadows. And it's been also just over three months since I've even been on the air. In that time, a lot has happened in Russia. We've had Vladimir Putin changing the constitution to effectively make him president for life or at least till 2036. We've had a sharp drop in Putin's approval rating. We've had protests in Habarovsk in the Russian Far East. We've seen the attempted assassination of Alexei Navalny. And in Russia's neighborhood, we've had the uprising in Belarus and the renewed armed conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan in Nagorno-Karabakh, both of which proved to be tricky challenges for Russian foreign policy, and both of which carried fair amounts of risk and opportunity for Putin. And Mark, since your book, We Need to Talk About Putin, which is quite frankly an excellent book and deserves every bit of praise it's well, thank you very much. It provides a, such a useful framework for us to talk and analyzing Putin's conduct. In fact, when I was reading this, I was imagining us arguing about these points on the podcast. So I guess we're actually going to do that now. And I thought we could kind of use it as a way to look at a framework of the main events that have happened in Russia, both at home and abroad in the past year. And for those of you who have not read We Need to Talk About Putin, and shame on you, the book is structured around a series of questions. And like I said, as I was reading it, I could almost imagine us discussing and sometimes debating these points. So are you ready to roll? Of course. Let's do it. All right, let's start with the domestic politics in the first half, and then we'll move on to foreign affairs below the fold. I mean, a couple of the interesting questions you asked here is, is Putin a judoka or a chess player? 
Is he a pragmatist or is he a risk taker? And I thought this was the perfect set of questions to ask about the whole drama surrounding the constitutional amendments earlier this year. At the time, many of us assumed, and many of us later had to eat crow, but many of us assumed that Putin was gearing up to create a new position for himself post-2024 that wasn't president of the Russian Federation. This was the so-called Deng Xiaoping variant that we've been talking about for years, perhaps upgrading the state council, the Soviet, perhaps upgrading the security council to establish himself as sort of a national leader who's above politics. Again, the Deng Xiaoping model or the Ayatollah model, if you will, um, the supreme leader model. Instead, to many of our surprise, including, quite frankly, my own, he chose the crudest form of extending his rule, effectively zeroing out term limits for himself. So, Mark, I guess my question to you is, was Putin being a judoka here? Was he being a chess master? Was he being pragmatic? Was he being a risk taker? What was Putin doing here? How did you interpret this decision, which went against certainly what I expected? I don't know if it was what you expected, but how do do you see this decision? Well, certainly, I don't think Putin is ever a risk taker. And in some ways, I think this is one of the reasons why things ended up being much more crude and I agree with you there, than originally thought. COVID-19 has caught us all by surprise in so many different ways. But particularly, I think, for Putin, it hits all his weak points and all his blind spots. It's a problem that does not lend itself to a neat and easy solution. It is, by definition, very hard to actually kind of think your way through to how it can be resolved until, of course, the the magic vaccines, which are going to fix everything. But also, it's not a problem that you can, to put it bluntly, poison it or beat it or imprison it or muzzle it. It's a problem that speaks to someone who is managerial, details-oriented, none of which really fits Putin. Putin's a big picture now tell people go off and, and actually do the do the problem. So I think actually, I mean, COVID, which clearly did impact his approval ratings, but also I think impacted his confidence in how to proceed. But we, what we really need to, I think, in my opinion, realize is that Putin does not set detailed grand plans that he then feels he is tied to. I mean, again, and this this is the yeah. joker rather than the chess player side. And this is the ad hocracy that you like to Yeah, talk. exactly. He, he wants options. He wants to have, I mean, there is nothing to stop. I mean, already it's interesting because the state council, I mean, and it clearly the evolution of the legislation you know, has been precisely a process. It's not just that he had some grand plan and he just didn't tell us about it. I mean, it's interesting that basically people voted on the new legislation in principle before actually they got to find out what about the state council was going to change. Interesting, so yeah. <laughs> nothing, nothing is kind of ruled out there. Likewise, with the zeroing of term limits, I mean, what that does is it takes all the talk of succession after all, had become such an obsession within the chattering classes last year, takes it off the table and more or less shows to them that Putin is not interested in seeing this conversation played out, especially at the moment. Thank you very much. But on the other hand, it doesn't lock him into anything. I mean, he can still walk away at any point, but he now also has the option of staying Mm -hmm. on. 
Again, this for me is classic Putin. This is interesting, Mark, because I hadn't heard this line of argument before that actually it was COVID that drove this decision. Because I was assuming, and if you listen back to earlier iterations of this podcast from back in January before we went off the air, and my then colleagues, Maria Snegovaya and Donald Jensen, we were talking about, I saw Putin kind of reconstructing parallels to different kind of Soviet institutions that would kind of supersede the political institutions. So I saw the Gos Soviet as a new manifestation of the Central Committee. And I saw the Security Council kind of being turned into a potentially new Politburo. And then it wouldn't really matter who the president was. And it looked kind of elegant and it looked kind of, again, of course, this is what Putin knows. And then he shifted rap. But you're right, it did kind of coincide with COVID becoming a problem. And do you think that was the main variable driving his decision? Well, look, it's, it's so hard. It's so hard to know. But I mean, what we can say with, I think, a moderate amount of confidence, and let's face it, a moderate amount of confidence is about as far as we can go, is that when he initially announced these changes, there does not seem to have been a really strong, solid, detailed package ready. Because they went into the whole just farcical discussion about how to change the constitution and, oh, it's it, it's the people who actually get to, um, or, or indeed cosmonauts, who actually get to <laughs> d- define what it's going to be. Um, and again, in that respect, I think it was an interesting sort of exercise in Putin Anyway, throwing out that, you know, he wanted to see some changes. It was time for a package of changes. What could people offer? That would catch his eye. Again, this is classic Putin. You know, he's not the sort of person who turns around to his guys and says, you know, I've been working all night and here is my plan. No, he tells people, I want you to work all night and give me a plan that I can decide whether I like it or not. Mm-hmm. So I think it was that. And then this coincides with COVID. Now, again, how far we actually put the full waiting? Or how far is it just simply that when his guys came back to him and said, look, we've had a look at this and this is the best we can come up with. And he decided, no, actually, it's not going to work. I mean, Security Council, I never really thought was in the frame uh-huh. just because of its position within the constitutional system. But on the other hand, I mean, I think, you know, I'll be honest, I thought state council was going to become something much more interesting and, and something so much you were, more Yeah, you and I were pretty much in agreement on that. I, and I think you thought the Security Council was going to become something interesting. I was starting to, that, that my thinking was evolving on that. Um, and then it all blew up and none of it mattered. But go ahead. I'm sorry I cut you off there. No, no, it's fine. I mean, I think this is it. And it still could, because when you come down to it, I mean, in some ways, never mind the, the Central Committee, I mean, in some ways, the state council can be the Zemstva. You know, it is where you can actually bring together the representatives from different regions, different right. parts of the country, well, that's, yeah, and also that's interest groups. Zemstva. That's interesting. This kind of leads into the next thing I wanted to talk about, because this is the other kind of thing from this year, is the question you asked, and we need to talk about Putin, is Putin popular with Russians? Which is a question we have discussed over and over and over again, and that popularity in Russia is very difficult to measure, because what are you measuring it against? But it seemed to me that a According to the plan, this was supposed to be a triumphant year for Putin. I think they were looking at it this way. At the start of the year, the constitutional amendments were supposed to be this triumphant moment that cemented Putin's rule for the foreseeable future, put an end to the question of succession once and for all, created, I think, they were hoping to create a new kind of regime where these troublesome elections don't really matter anymore, and to put together a more Soviet-style regime. Now, COVID seems to have thrown a wrench in all of that. He seemed to lose his mojo a bit with his very shaky response to the COVID-19 pandemic. 
pandemic. He wavered back and forth between giving governors authority to deal with it and then getting nervous when they took too much authority. There was a outbreak of anti-Moscovite sentiment in Russia that was getting a lot of attention and press. People in the provinces not renting their flats to Muscovites. You had a lot of things that were you know, bubbling below the surface that kind of pierced the sanctity of Putin's rule, if you will, pierced the aura of uh, omnipotence. And I wrote a piece back in March about this, the desanctification of Putin. So you had that, and then you had Habarovsk, a completely unnecessary situation after the arrest of a popular elected governor out there that created a big problem there. And then you saw Putin's approval rating fall to an all-time low. It fell below 60%. Now, we've all said, you know, the requisite caveat here in Western countries made for a 60% approval. In Russia, 60% is nothing because it's 60% against no alternative, 60% against chaos. He had felt fallen to 59%, according to some Levada polls. He's back up above 60, but not of much more now. I've been describing this as this crisis of late Putinism is that Putin is increasingly facing a society that he doesn't really understand anymore, a society that's changing, a society that's getting younger. And Maria Snegovaya is doing, I think, groundbreaking research on the, the rising generation, the post-Soviet generations, plural, that we're seeing rising in Russia. How do you see this? Do you see that this is a kind of a crisis of late Putinism, that Putin is facing a society he doesn't understand anymore? I mean, the short answer is yes. But before I properly answer, I mean, let me come Back to one specific point, because I'm just curious. You use the expression, phrase, late Putinism, which I've used as well. And some people come back to me and say, well, why? Why do you use this expression? Why not mature or whatever? I'm <laughs> curious. I mean, I have my answer. What would be your answer as why this is late Putinism? Because it is the it is the period in which the regime has lost its dynamism. It's lost the initiative. It doesn't mean the end is near. But in, I mean, when we think of late Brezhnevism, when did that? That was like the late 70s, effectively, right? The late 70s, when the Brezhnev regime kind of slid into stagnation. And when you look at the early Brezhnev period, you do see this very Putin-esque figure. It's hard to believe now, but, you know, Brezhnev had this energetic you know, guy that used to like to go out hunting. And they were, you know, there were photographs of Brezhnev with a, you know, with, a, with a rifle hunting bears. So when I say late Putinism, it is the period where they have lost the initiative. They are reactive. That's the way I'm. I see it and that it's slight. They have no more justification to rule anymore other than they want to continue ruling. That's interesting. Yeah, there was a justification earlier. Putin ended the chaos of the 90s, rose Russian living standards. And then when that fell apart after the Bolotna period, when he lost the middle classes, they switched to this kind of traditional values meme that played to the base in the rural and working classes, if you will. They seem to be losing that now. They're not really setting the agenda anymore. Yeah, that's that's my answer. How would how would you see? Yeah, I mean, I, I I think essentially come to this from a slightly different route, but reach a similar place. I mean, obviously one could say in some ways late Brezhnevism was after he died the first time and been jump started <laughs> back, and obviously we haven't got that with Putin. But in some ways, I mean, for me, it would be Balotmayer, um, which is in a way when he politically died and was jump started. So the castling, basically. Yeah, well, exactly, and the, and the return and how they dealt with that, and in right. a way the. I suppose Crimea was the jump starting. Yeah. Um, and, and, it felt, and yes, I mean, for me, it's late Putinism in many ways precisely because it, it has exhausted its opportunities to reinvent itself, to evolve yes. in a positive way. Anyway, to go, go back to your question. Yeah, I mean, this is it. I think this was indeed 
again, if we're talking about jump-starting, this was, was once again a chance to kind of relaunch Putin, I would say. Now, rather than this sort of final settling, I don't think there's going to be some sort of Soviet-style regime or whatever, but this was the point when they were going to take all the sanctifying energy of the 75th anniversary of the Great Patriotic War, which does still mean something in, in Russia, even for you know people who are not of, of that generation. And it was exactly the point where he was going to become this sacral figure who was precisely the, the representative of the Russian people, which has always his, been his shtick. Um, but in this case, it was specifically to imbue him with all the powers and the passions of that. And yes, it could become a secular coronation. It was all meant to kind of born as coincide at the the same time. There was going to be this massive jamboree. There were going to be foreign visitors coming to again emphasize that Russia was a great global power. This was not purely an historical event. It was going to involve you know, every single Russian. And then at the heart of it, there would be Putin. Again, actually, I'm now beginning to sort of think of almost like this kind of Frankenstein's monster kind of thing, where all the sort of the patriotic lightnings would come down <laughs> and imbue this great, great, great beast. But exactly. COVID came along. And first of all, it totally sort of kiboshed all the grand plans for what was going to happen for the 75th anniversary. No foreign guests. Yes, they had their grand parades, but, you know, fine. So you, ha you have your soldiers marching through the streets. But, you know, but the whole point, it was that it is this massive, immersive experience in which everyone is wandering around in their little Pilotka sidecaps and there's patriotic music blaring out through the loudspeakers. And exactly everyone is involved from, mm -hmm. from great granddad with his medal down to the little kid waving a flag. None of that could happen. And at the same time, as you say, Putin very badly handled COVID. And again, I said, because he didn't know what to do and because his instinct when he's faced with a problem to which he doesn't have an answer is basically to run away from it. And he more or less dumped it all on, on the governors without giving them the resources and the powers commensurate with the task. And as he said, he said, get on with it while he hid behind his disinfecting tunnel yeah. and his two-week yeah. quarantines for his aides and all the other things. It's nice to be the king. I'm going to want to pick up on that, but go ahead, because that, I think that's an interesting thing. Two quick points on, on the late Putinism thing, things that I forgot to say that I think also are pretty much in sync with where you are. And one is that there's no social contract anymore. The original Putin social contract, implicit, we give you prosperity. And the, and the Russian people gladly accepted that in the early 2000s. And then when there was this kind of desire for rights post-Bolotnaya, the new social contract was you give up your rights and your prosperity, we give you empire. Right now, the dreams of empire, of restored empire are fading. And it's like, now what? What's the social contract now? I cannot come up with what the new social contract is, the implicit social contract. The other thing, and this is going back to your point about the castling and Bolotnaya, I have to give a credit here to Professor Timothy Snyder at Yale, because he made this point in a, in a lecture he gave not long ago at Brown, where he said, this is the point where Russia decided it didn't want to have something that is kind of a fundamental attribute of a functioning, healthy state. And that's a succession principle. Russia stopped having a succession principle following the castling de facto. 
And this again moves, I think this kind of coincides with the kind of social contract thing. But I suspect you probably agree with me on these things. Maybe you have some nuance and want to push back a bit. I see you writing. Well, I mean, I think, first of all, you know, it's not that Russia decided he didn't want a succession principle. The whole point of Bolotnaya was actually right. Russia right. wanted a succession Fair principle enough. and it was annoyed, deeply peeved. And the interesting also thing, thing about Bolotnaya is worth stressing is that, yes, the people who are out on the streets, the people who are having their skulls cracked by the National Guard, were the sort of Moscow metropolitan middle class set. But actually, the disillusion that it created, I think, was much, much more more general. I mean, I think just there's a lot of people who had rather more to lose and who weren't going to go out on the streets. They actually feel that, to put it very bluntly, they were all screwed over. Right. So I think that was a pivotal moment. And again, going back to this business of social contract, you see, empire, Crimea was a singular moment, a singular thing. It does not scale up to anything else. It's not actually people thinking, wow, yes, Crimea. So while we're at it, let's get something else. The Russian people have never demonstrated any enthusiasm for any other imperial ventures, but even Putin. Donbass. But Putin. I mean, well, this is the thing. Putin has sought it, but I don't think even that. It's not, I think, in the name of empire. Look, actually, you know, I think people know that in most things, most parts of the world, Russians don't really care about Syria. They don't really care about They're happy with the kind of techno-war porn stuff that shows how sort of great their missiles are and so forth, you know, like most countries with rather imperial foreign policies. But no one actually wants to see their boys coming home in zinc boxes as a result. That's the real test of empire. Oh, what kind of costs are you willing to take? No, I mean, I think the thing about empire was much more, well, A, it was, it was one of the sort of trial balloons. It was the attempt at finding this new rationale. There was a sense of, you know, we have, you know, Russia has been lifted up off its feet. That's fine. You know, would you like your country to be respected and powerful? Most people would say, yes, it doesn't matter if, if you're Russian, American, British or, or Belgian, you will no doubt be happy to say that. But no one's willing to pay the price. And therefore, I think actually the, the foreign policy dimension to the legitimating narrative was much more about the world is a dangerous place. The world hates Russia. The world hates Russians. And that's why I'm afraid we, we are this beleaguered fortress and we all have to pull together. Mm. It was a much more negative thing. And again, you know, that can work a bit. And it had some small amounts of traction for a while. But when it comes down to it, look, I don't think people believe yeah. it. I don't think people are motivated by it. So what they are often trying to do is come up with new things. And all they've got are these negatives. I mean, now we have the whole democracy and Western-style democracy is messy, anarchic. You end up with, you know, LGBT-dominated policies and mobs on the streets. And gosh, look here at this footage of downtown Washington, D.C., where the riots are just around the corner. But these are all very negative things. Well, and again, that goes back to the late Putinism. In a sense, and just I want to go very briefly on this, because I just saw a piece by my old colleagues at RFERL. My old colleague, Rob Colson, wrote an interesting piece at RFERL about how the Russian state television is, and since we are in this kind of post-election period here in the U.S., we're, we're not going to get our way with not mentioning this at all. Um, the Russian state television is making fun of the chaos in the U.S. It's, wow, look how messy this stupid American democracy is. But on Russian social media, 
you have a quite different thing. You have a lot of jealousy, like, wow, they actually take care to count all the votes in America. And there's CCTV in there watching them doing it. And there was a funny meme going around some Russian Twitter accounts today of Ella Pamphilova, the, uh, the head of the Russian Election Commission, laughing hysterically. And the meme is when Ella Pamphilova found out that Americans actually count votes. So you have a very different dynamic going on in the social media, which contrasts what you have in the state media. And this incidentally is exactly what happened after the Ukrainian, during the Ukrainian election, when Zelensky and Poroshenko were debating, they were showing this on Russian television in hopes of showing the society, look at these stupid Ukrainians, they're so chaotic. They're actually having a debate. The Russian public, especially the opposition, were watching and saying, wow, this is what a real debate looks like. This is what a real presidential election looks like. This is what democracy looks like. There was one tweet I saw, though it was some Russian tweeted, I feel like the Ukrainians are all grown up and we're still in kindergarten. You know, so this, it's having the opposite effect, but that I just wanted to squeeze that in there. One more thing before we move on, I, I wanted to uh, bring up, because you had a question and we need to talk about Putin. Is Putin a solitary ruler or the front man for a collective leadership? And there are reports coming out on certain telegram channels and in some Russian media that Putin is completely isolated right now, that he is basically in his residence. To see him, you have to go through two-week quarantine. Very few people are able to see him. I heard Kovalchuk has been able to get in there, but not many people are getting in there. I don't know if you've seen these reports, what you think of their veracity, but more importantly, how you think this plays into the kind of Putin, the solitary leader versus Putin, the front man for the collective leadership. This is something you and I have been talking about for years as well. Yeah, I, again, it's about the fact that there is a difference between Putin, the head of state, Putin, the grand decider, who is the person who can resolve the logjam issues, who can actually set the grand policy and the people who are actually running the country. And again, I think what happens as a result is, you know, for a long time, Putin has been winnowing down his circle of people he actually listens to, you know, more and more contrarian. I know contrarian. I mean, just simply, let's just say on the whole. Interestingly, who would you put in that inner circle that he's actually talking to? In that inner circle now, I mean, essentially, it's people who are his mates who are actually largely in business. So it's the Rokhubers, it's Tim Chenko, it's Kovalchuk, people like that. Then in terms of the state apparatus, it's to a large extent people who are security connected, people like, say, Patrushev, Shoigu, or else, but to the point, it's the presidential administration. Again, that more and more becomes the hub. But again, what's happened is, in this respect, COVID has simply acted as an accelerator. I mean, precisely because it's now it's harder. It's physically isolating. Exactly. One one, one could never just simply drop in. Well, I suppose maybe, you know, perhaps Sechin could. But, you know, on the whole, one, one could never just drop in on Putin. But even so, especially now, if you know, if you more just have to budget two weeks worth of, of isolation beforehand, and therefore it has exacerbated this existing problem. And so this comes back to, I mean, we didn't really sort of fully sort of nail down the question of, of Putin's popularity and precisely the issue of the gap between the official narrative and the real narrative in the country, which again is a very late Brezhnevian mm-hmm. kind yes. of phenomenon that, you know, yeah. you, you open Pravda and everything's going brilliantly. And then you talk to people around the kitchen table. It's not quite the same. Right. Um, but likewise, I mean, it's not that actually, you know, Russians today are living in lives of immiseration or whatever. Yes, standards of living have gone down, but, you know, basically speaking, they, they're doing okay. Okay, the economy is doing okay. 
But there is this real sense that increasingly it is the staff who are squabbling amongst themselves. We have, you know, again, from the same sort of telegram channels, more and more about Mishustin um, trying to assert himself as a prime minister and not a prime minister in the sense of the chief butler. After, you know, it's really the role. Medvedev's role, prime minister, exactly. But actually, in some ways, as the head of government. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the, I suppose Putin's vicar on earth would, in some ways, be the idea. You know, but basically, that Mishustin is the pope to the divine Putin. Ah, uh-huh. uh, interesting. Uh, and the person who gets to interpret the scripture which is, after all, a tremendously powerful thing. You know, Stalin's old dictum was, after all, it doesn't matter who votes, it's matter who's, who counts the votes. Well, maybe the modern one is it doesn't matter who gets to set the policy. What matters is who tells everyone else what mm-hmm. policy has been set. Uh-huh. And again, I, 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 play this role, right? Yeah, and, and I think, you know, all this speaks to the fact that it's not just that Putin himself is not necessarily as popular. It's also that in some ways he's irrelevant. Now, he still has the capacity at any point to lean back in. Mm-hmm. But I wonder how far he really knows mm-hmm. what's going on, how far he really cares. Unless and until there's some kind of disaster, or unless until one of his closest confidants says, you know, Vova, you've got to do something because of X. And mm-hmm. I do know Mishustin is being very careful not to go after the interests of any of Putin's closest. Right, right. Um, up to that point, you know, he'll just be getting reports that says, hey, everything's fine. Right. Right. OK. Well, there's, that's interesting. I had heard of this rumblings about Miss Houston, but I have not heard it in that kind of minutiae. That's very interesting. I'm going to want to want to look into this. One last thing on domestic politics I did want to touch on because we're bumping into the halfway point here is I wanted to discuss the assassination attempt against Alexei Navalny, of course. I've seen you've written about this here and there. And this points to one of your questions. And we need to talk about Putin. How dangerous is it to oppose Putin? Now, I I have not written on this yet. My thinking about this was it is hard for me to fathom an assassination attempt against an opposition leader of the, of the stature and caliber of a Navalny, which is a dangerous move. I can't see that happening without Putin's explicit say so. I know you're going to disagree. I um, mean, that's cool. Um, what I kept thinking about with this was the assassination of Nemtsov, which we both agree that was Kadyrov going rogue. That was Ramzan Kadyrov going rogue and Putin wasn't happy about it. That was my feeling at the time. That is my feeling now. This wasn't Kadyrov wasn't involved in this, right? To my knowledge, right? And nobody else is going to have the chutzpah to go rogue on Putin other than Kadyrov. So did you see, because I saw the attempted assassination of Alexei Navalny with Novichok, with a, with a nerve agent, the exact same nerve agent they tried to use to assassinate Skripal in Salisbury. I mean, I just can't see a, and I bet you're going to push back on this a, a little bit too, but that's cool. I just don't see your average Tom, Dick, or Harry getting their hands on Novichok, right? That's that's something that, you know, you have to be connected to get your hands on that nerve agent. Number one. Number two, I don't see anybody going after Navalny without Putin's explicit OK, or at least without thinking they have Putin's explicit OK. I don't know if he said, will somebody please rid me of this troublesome priest and somebody misinterpreted that or, or not. What's your take on this? Mark? Yeah, oh, it's interesting because for me, I think my take has been evolving. And in some ways, perversely, I'm going to draw a parallel with Crimea. Mm-hmm. Uh, But I'll come to that at the end. No, I think with Navalny, my first thinking was, why on earth would Putin go after him? 
I mean, Navalny is a, is definitely a problem, but up to this point, you know, it's it's been sort of a problem that the state has been willing to deal with in different ways. And therefore, one does think, OK, you know, obviously, yes, it can't just be you know, a local mayor. I mean, if you've got access to Novichok, which is not impossible if you're one of the big beasts in the system. If you're one of the big beasts in the system. Exactly. I mean, so, so my thinking was that it was, you know, it could well be someone who had a particular axe to grind, who either thought that Putin would be happy about it. You know, this often, you know, again, go back to the the, the suggestion that uh, the murder of Anna Polikovskaya on Putin's birthday was actually Kadyrov. Kadyrov. Whenever Kadyrov's in there, all other logic is out. But but, but nonetheless, you know, he was probably thinking he was he was actually giving a birthday present. Right. Even though actually it was probably more more problematic than anything else. No, I mean, obviously this 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 wasn't Kadyrov. Poison's not his kind of thing. But you know, there there are other other figures. You know, and I certainly would never, for example, talk about someone like Prigozhin. In that context, it's purely, I'm sure, coincidental the extent to which Prigozhin almost turned himself into a pantomime villain afterwards, going after Navalny's money, trying to sort of offer to pay for the hospital treatment, twirling a a metaphorical moustache as he cackled. I'm sure that's entirely coincidental. But so at first I was thinking it could be one of these figures. However, one of the things that convinces me otherwise is precisely you said you know exactly the same nerve agent that was used against Skripal. Well, what we're hearing from the Germans is it wasn't exactly the same. It was actually a new variant of Novichok. Okay, designed to be no. That's significant because I mean that there is some suggestion. I mean, you know, making Novichok is not impossible if you have. I mean, well, it's it's not impossible even if you have a moderately quality lab, but then you might well also die. But actually, you know, if if you are rich enough to be able to go for you know to basically hire or have access to high order labs of the sort. That can also make certain kinds of drugs and medicines and so forth. You can make Novichok. You can't, however, invent a new variety of Novichok without the kind of resources that essentially the... Only the Russian state has. And not even, I mean, and specifically, the, the only two places where we, where we have a pretty good sense that this is development is going underway, one that's connected to the GRU and one that's connected to the FSP. Okay. There is also a, a kind of camera associated with, with the SVR, but I don't think they have a research program. Do you see anybody in the GRU or the FSB doing something like this without Putin's explicit? Not exactly. Not, I think, for this kind of new level stuff. So I suspect this actually was a, a state hit after all. So we And agree. also, it's worth noting that there was no none of the kind of angst that followed the Nemtsov assassination. Right. I mean, no, you're so right. That was, it was a real investigation. No, that was, yeah. Until yep. they realized that there was a Kadira collection. No, they something. suggested Navalny poisoned himself. Exactly. <laughs> All this kind of nonsense. This is where I bring in the Crimea parallel. I, I got it wrong with Crimea. I didn't think they were actually going to try and formally annex it. Because, in a way, we often have to rely on past experience and project it to what's happening in, you know, at the moment, which means that we're often caught off guard when there is that moment, that inflection point when a paradigm shifts. Mm-hmm. Crimea reflected a paradigm shift moment. Right. Actually, Putin sort of, his foreign policy moved to a different world. So my concern is precisely that actually this represents a paradigm shift that, That's again, disturbing. would fit in with this whole notion of late Putinism, of a crudeness, a lack of sophistication that's coming into its methods. We're not getting Surkovian dramaturgia. We're just getting right. killed the, the people yeah, who get in yeah, no, Exactly, exactly. We got an isolated, a, literally, 
physically isolated Putin on top of this, who a lot of people think his decision making is becoming more erratic. No, we are exactly on the same page on that. That's that's interesting. I thought we were going to have an argument about that. But on such a a really good (laughs) podcast requires furious. We've got to have an argument or else David Johnson's going to give me hell. All right. Well, that's a good good note, note to shift gears on. In a few moments, we will continue our discussion and shift gears to look at foreign affairs, specifically Russia's response to the uprising in Belarus and the conflict in Nagorno-Karabakh. I would like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. My name is Brian Whitmore, an adjunct assistant professor at UTA and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Joining me from an undisclosed location somewhere in the United Kingdom is Mark Galliotti, Principal Director of Mayak Intelligence, Honorary Professor at University College London School of Slavonic and Eastern European Studies, and a Senior Associate Fellow at the Royal United Service Institute. Mark is also the author of the books, The Vori Russia Super Mafia, and we need to talk about Putin, as well as many others, and the host of his own podcast, In Moscow's Shadows, which you should all listen to. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. You can also access the podcast and read the Power Vertical blog and access all Power Vertical products at the brand spanking new website, powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Внимание! Говорит и показывает Москва. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин. Нас никто не слушал. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности гоним вас. С новым веком. And so now we shift to foreign affairs. And there are a few questions from we need to talk about Putin that are very, very relevant here. In addition to the ones about risk-taking, pragmatism, judokas, chess masters, there are these. Does Putin want to restore the Soviet Union, the Russian Empire? Is Putin ideological? Is he driven by a sense of mission in historical role? Truth told, Mark, when I was reading the book, these were the areas I thought that you and I would have disagreements. And I don't think that that sentiment was misplaced. But let's get into it. Maybe we disagree less than we think we do. First, let's talk Belarus, because I thought this was a fascinating case study. Going into the elections in August, you basically had a situation in Belarus that nobody was entirely happy with, but nobody was also unhappy with. And what do I mean by that? From the Russians' perspective, but from Putin's perspective, from the Kremlin's perspective, they would have liked a figure a little bit more pliant, a little less troublesome, a little bit better behaved than Lukashenko, right? But they probably weren't willing to take the risk to try to overthrow him and replace him with a more client figure. I mean, this to me goes back to a very fundamental difference in the way Lukashenko and Putin view this relationship. In addition to detesting each other personally, Putin looks at the relationship as imperial. I am the big brother. You are the little brother. I am the imperial lord and you are the vassal. Well, Lukashenko looks at it as transactional. You pay me and I'll be your ally. Nobody was totally happy with this. Nobody was completely unhappy with it. Equally, from the Belarusian opposition standpoint, they didn't like Lukashenko. They wanted a more democratic figure, but they also wanted their sovereignty, and they understood that any change in leadership could jeopardize that sovereignty, right? So they weren't entirely happy. They weren't entirely unhappy. The West was 
to put it mildly, not really happy with Lukashenko, would like a much more democratic figure that respected human rights. But Belarus's sovereignty was safe under him. Russian troops weren't in Belarus. So again, not entirely happy, not entirely unhappy. The upheaval after the elections in August basically upset this entire apple cart. And from Putin's perspective, he had various options here. And I was wondering what he was going to do. I really didn't have a clear take on what I thought he was going to do. He could stick with Lukashenko, which is what he eventually did. But that had risk because that put him against the Belarusian people. And Putin was more popular in Belarus than Lukashenko was. But now by siding with Lukashenko, he put himself at odds with the Belarusian people. So he chose that aspect of the risk, right? But he could have engineered a transition. They got a pliant figure in. Anybody that came in was going to try. Tikhanovskaya is basically, you know, has said she wants good relations with Russia. I thought they could have engineered an Armenian variant, something similar to Armenia's Velvet Revolution, that basically didn't kept the, the geopolitical status quo as it was. So how did you see this? How do you see Russia's goals in Belarus? And how do you see how Putin played out through this very, very difficult situation? Yes, if Putin had been more Machiavellian, more imaginative and more willing to take a risk, they absolutely could have gone for some kind of engineered Mm -hmm. uh, regime change. However, first of all, it would have been risky because Lukashenko was not going to go easy. And the one thing that Lukashenko has done very effectively is to ensure that there is not a huge network of Russian agents and proxies within the, his government and above all within not his a huge network, but a relatively large. No, I mean, no, I mean, I think you know, if there was going to be a parallel, I mean, we'd be talking Afghanistan, nineteen seventy-nine. Mm. If they wanted to get Lukashenko out and they couldn't make a deal with him, and I think the thing about Lukashenko is, I think he's decided that you know, basically, he does not want to have a large dacha on you know suburb of Moscow. He still wants to be Lord of Minsk. Thank you very much. No, I think it would have quite possibly been the case where they actually would have had to use military force to supplant him. And one of the key things of Putin's foreign policy is precisely stability. So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure there would have been some people who were coming up with that idea. Instead, Putin defaulted to what seems to be the lowest risk strategy. Now, I think it's a stupid short termist one because mm -hmm. absolutely, as you say, I mean, it, what it has done, it has turned an essentially anti-Lukashenka protest that had nothing against Russia within which the opposition was well, quite, I mean, they were going out of their way to, to say how much this was purely about Lukat into now precisely affiliating Russia with Lukashenko, which means that even if this particular spate of protest is eventually suppressed, the next one will basically be the Belarusian Maidan. Yes. The next one will actually be as We're much on the same else. page here in terms of what we see sort is of, coming down the road. Now, that said, I mean, I don't think they have just simply said, OK, well, we'll just have to sort of back Lukashenko and that's the end of it. I suspect that they are still seeking to engineer some kind of shift. But the point is, Lukashenko, I think, is likewise probably working out how he can, well, once he's got past the initial crisis, get Russia's fingers off his throat. So, I mean, I think that basically, because they didn't have the nerve to try something more dramatic, they just kind of kicked the metaphorical yeah. cat down the road a bit longer. No, I mean, a couple of things to add here. I am hearing from my sources in Minsk that Lukashenko is very ill. 
Now, I don't know whether that's true or not. I cannot verify that. I cannot confirm that. But I'm hearing it from trusted sources in this, that, that Lukashenko is very ill. So this might be playing into it. Putin might just be playing for a little time here and then preparing for a post-Lukashenko transition if he is indeed as sick as my sources in this say. And again, caveat to everybody listening, I have not confirmed this. I do not know this, but I have I have heard this from people in Minsk who are in a position to know. So there's that. On your larger point of like where, I mean, Putin essentially set himself against Belarus. It's going to be the fire next time. The next one's the Maidan. And if Putin's goal, as I think it is, to restore the empire is such a, a, a lousy term to basically maintain Russian hegemony over the former Soviet lands. Let's just say that. I, I do think that is a primary foreign policy goal. And this is all goes into the Russian concept of strategic depth, which means pliant regimes on the, primarily on the Western border. If they've done that and they have begun to turn Belarus potentially into another Ukraine, where before Belarus wasn't that problematic. You pay it and it does what you want. My thinking here is they screwed up. Oh, absolutely. Again, I think this is it. It's this classic late Putin vice, which is go for what seems to be the easiest option for the moment, and hopefully things will sort themselves out. But above all, don't take risks. Mm-hmm. There's no way of getting around it. It would have been risky to try and bring some kind of regime change operation into Belarus, yes. not least because of how it kind of can spread. Mm-hmm. Not, I mean, spread in the sense of Russians sort of therefore thought it would have a, but in terms of what it actually says is that Russia is that kind of a regime. One of its strengths at the moment is essentially it stands for the status quo. It tries to find, you know, regimes that basically are looking for Russian support to hold on. It is not actually, on the whole, a revolutionary power, quite the opposite. Mm-hmm. It is much more Nicholas I sending mm-hmm. his armies in to suppress the 1848 and other risings. Right. So, I mean, I think this is, yeah, it was a bad move. Now, okay, it could be that they're just thinking, well, Lukashenko's not going to live long. Though, again, were I a smart and Machiavellian Belarusian, I might well want to spread that very rumor, because then other people might That's think, well, look, we, well. we can just we can just sort of slacken off the pressure because somehow it's going to fall into our lap anyway. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. But I think, you know, the thing is, yes, of course, the Russians will be looking for some kind of post-Lukashenko figure, and they could probably find someone who would be sort of acceptable to the Belarusian street and obviously sort of acceptable to them. But the days when they could expect that person to also be able to win over the opposition movement, I think that will be very, very unlikely. Mm, Yeah. No, I I think we're probably in agreement. And what this is showing me is that while I, I think you and I disagree about what Putin's goals are here, I do think Putin wants to restore the empire in some form. And that could be a postmodern form form where you do not have formal control, Mark. I'm thinking of a Sirkovian empire, if you will. (laughs) We weren't going to get away with not bringing Sirkov into the discussion here. But I think that is a goal. But what the Belarusian events have shown me is that their ability to do that is really slipping. It's really slipping because if you can't control Belarus, if you're Russia, this was the country that was the most positively disposed toward Russia of all the former Soviet space. And this was the one that was least trying to break out of Moscow's orbit. And if this is the best you can do, 
then you're in trouble. And that's what this bit was showing. Well, it's a question of what is the resource that is lacking? Because I think there's no question at all that Moscow could have acted in all kinds of different ways. Moscow still has capacity. It could have toppled Lukashenko. It could have sent in troops. It could have done all kinds of things. But the interesting thing is, is what I think the Russian, well, I say Russians, the Kremlin, for a long time convinced itself that, sure, the West has got more money, the West has got more troops, the West has got more tech. What we have, our strategic asset is will. Mm-hmm. We basically have yeah, the guts right. and the determination to do things that no one else does. And we're finding that, in fact, this increasingly senescent regime doesn't have that. I mean, you know, you mentioned, I mean, Azerbaijan, we have Turkey wandering into and playing a significant <laughs> role within Russia's, exactly, within Russia's self-declared sphere of influence. And, you know. What can Russia do about it? Well, you can send the Armenians a few drones, but basically not much. Likewise, in Belarus, when it came down to it, it's not that they didn't have capacity. They just didn't have what it takes. They, they didn't have either the ingenuity or, more importantly, the will to act. And I think that's the point. I mean, it's not just Surkov. We have to bring Lenin in here. <laughs> I mean, Lenin said, you know, what is the critical precondition for any revolution? It is a critical lack of will on the part of the elite. And I think we're seeing a critical lack of will on the part of the current Kremlin. That, that's that's interesting, Mark. That that's interesting. You brought up Karabakh, which is the last thing on my list of things to talk about. Let's talk about Karabakh because this is interesting. Because I've always assumed, and I think so have you, that it's in Russia's interest to keep this conflict frozen, to keep it frozen. Because when you keep it frozen, you keep the Armenians dependent on Russia because their entire defense is dependent on Russia. After all, you know, Armenia's state budget is roughly the size of the Azerbaijani defense budget. <laughs> so, you know, without Russia in the mix, Azerbaijan would run roughshod over the Armenians, but it also keeps the Azerbaijanis in line. The Russians are, in addition to giving arms to the Armenians, they're selling them to the Azerbaijanis at market prices, and they're keeping kind of both. But, but it is definitely not in Russia's interest for this conflict to get hot and kinetic. And it just got hot and kinetic. And it got hot and kinetic in a way in which Turkey intervened, helping its ally Azerbaijan. And this, you know, again, another situation, a la Syria, this looming potential for Turkey and Russia to be on on opposing sides of an armed conflict. When it went kinetic, Putin seemed absolutely impotent to do anything. I've not seen Russian foreign policy so impotent since Putin came to power as it was in the Karabakh conflict. Do you agree? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I just literally today, a piece of mine came out in the Middle East Institute blog, which looked at the recent Kafkaz military exercises that the Russians mm-hmm. carried out in the region and the extent to which that exercise demonstrates the extent to which the Russians have military capabilities, scalable military capabilities, to have acted in a variety of different ways in the context of this war. So again, we have another conflict, which is it's not about the actual physical resources there. It's about the will to act and a sense of what they think they can do from this. Now, obviously, the Armenians have held back from invoking collective security treaty organizations or rights, no doubt because the Russians are saying, don't you dare dare. (laughs) do that and put us in in that spot. And now, as I said, we're seeing a little bit of assistance being provided to to the Armenians in the sense of drones and maybe some counter drone technology being used out of, of Russian bases. But you know, on the whole, the Russians, you know, they, they don't know what to do precisely because the Azeris are, quote unquote, not being reasonable. 
mm-hmm. because the Turks are encouraging them the to do so. And at the moment, basically, actually, it looks like the Turks have that will that is so lacking. Yeah. I mean, in so many ways, it's happened basically ever since that Russian bomber got shot down by the Turks. You know, Erdogan out Putin's Putin. Whenever they lock horns. And I mean, this is why each of these crises becomes cumulative. I mean, we haven't really got time to go into detail, but obviously Kyrgyzstan. Yeah. What a situation where something happens in what is meant to be the area where Russia is the kind of regional security guarantor. And they have no idea what to do. Mm -hmm. So I think this is what we come down to it. I mean, for me, you know, whether we call it empire, informal empire, regional hegemony, sphere of influence, whatever. Yeah, absolutely. This is the area where Russia feels that it is the big guy. Yeah. It is the one who gets him to make the decisions, to, to resolve the disputes, and yes, often to keep these frozen conflicts as handy levers. Yeah. Suddenly, though, the little guys yeah. aren't listening to the big guy, yeah. and the big guy's not sure what to do. Yeah, no. And the other thing that strikes me, though, is this is just another area where Russia and Turkey, supposedly partners some kind of weird convoluted way. They're on opposing sides in Syria. They're on opposing sides in Libya. They're on opposing sides in Karabakh. One has to wonder, I mean, there's a great book coming out in the near future, plug for another friend's book, Jeff Mankoff's upcoming book, which is looking at Russian, Turkish, Iranian, and Chinese foreign policy as how it is driven by the imperial past and how, and what we're seeing here is Empires kind of the old empires kind of bumping into each other in their desired spheres of influence in their postmodern iterations. That's my words, not Jeff's, but I, I just wanted to give a plug for Jeff's book. Mark, this has been a lot of fun. Any last words before we wrap it up for this week? I suppose the only point I would make is this. It's always easy to kind of predict the decline of Putinism. And I've been doing it for a while. I mean, When it comes down to it, we need to remember, first of all, that Russia actually still has significant resources, and not just military ones, but also human ones. And actually, there's still a lot of smart people operating within the system who are trying to bring adaptability in. They can only do it in little sectors. We're seeing it well, kind of definitely the, the foreign policy wonks are trying to adapt to the notion of a, of a Biden presidency, for example. Mm-hmm. The military are doing very well at kind of adapting to what may be a rather more straightened budget. It's more that this is the kind of the bagel presidency. There is a hole in the middle. Right. But there is still quite a lot sort of around it. Is Putin the break on those that are the smarter people within the elite that want it? Yeah, absolutely. Because, well, I mean, but the point is, well, except that a lot of people don't want there to be change. Remember, you know, certainly Putin's generation, they're the generation who saw what happens when smart reformers try to change a system. Right. And actually, they would rather be Brezhnev's than Gorbachev's in that Mm -hmm. respect. It's more that you might say this, the system has become so thoroughly presidential so hyper-presidential that everything depends on the character, the knowledge, the energy, the enthusiasm, the vision of that person at the center. And when that person at the center isn't demonstrating pretty much any of those, then the system has a problem. And that actually, again, is something that we found in Brezhnevism, where actually it needed that central figure to be able to break all kinds of policy logjams. And Brezhnev yeah, poor dear by that stage. Right. Was not up to that. He could barely talk at that stage. 
<laughs> so Putin's still able to talk, the best I can see. Well, that's a good note to wrap it up on. That's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you that you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. My name is Brian Whitmore, an adjunct assistant professor at UTA and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Joining me from an undisclosed location somewhere in the United Kingdom has been Mark Galliotti, Principal Director of Mayak Intelligence, Honorary Professor at University College London School of Slavonic and Eastern European Studies, and a Senior Associate Fellow at the Royal United Services Institute. Mark's also author of the books, The Vody, Russia Super Mafia, and We Need to Talk About Putin, which all of you should read. And he is also the host of his own podcast, In Moscow Shadows, which you should all listen to. Mark, thanks for an enlightening discussion. It's been so much fun. I have missed doing this so much, and this has been great. Glad to be back on the air with you. No, yeah, I hope we can do it again in the future. We won't be able to do it as often as we used to, but I hope you'll come back on periodically. I'd also like to thank our production team, Lance Ligas in the virtual control room, who keeps the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion, and Cecilia Gwynn, who handles our all-important post-production. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Tune. In. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at our brand new website, www.powervertical.org, and you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week, and until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix prepared by our production team. <laughs>